This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a fortress of fortitude in an unfortunate world. And the number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness. It's like, where's Waldo? If by Waldo, you mean my bottle of Jack Daniels. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. I'm usually joined by my wonderful co-host, Nurse Amy, nurse practitioner extraordinaire and purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so tough, she brushes her teeth with our pet hedgehog. Where is she? Well, it's the holidays, and so she's helping all the elves in our magical warehouse of mystery put together medical kits for all the good boys and girls. On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom. You're going to get also the unconventional medical wisdom. And if you're still listening, the many unhinged tirades of someone too old to be let out of the house by himself, especially in public. Whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for hard times. But to hear all this great information, you got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. Why should you care? It's just a zombie apocalypse. But answer me this. Who's the family medic going to be when the next pandemic knocks all the hospitals out of commission and a family member is sick or injured? Who's in charge then? Don't look at me. I'm just a fly on the wall. When it's least expected, you're elected. So get off your duff and learn some stuff. Get some medical supplies while you're at it. Amy could tell you where you'll find some. And that's at store.doomandbloom.net. If you have an FSA or other health savings account, this is a great time to use that money before the end of the year. And Amy's got a specific section on the store for eligible kits. She'll also put together all the paperwork you'll need to make sure everything's covered and done properly. This is a good opportunity to get more medically prepared. I also want to mention the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon, over more than 2,000 reviews, still number one in its categories. If you haven't checked out our greatly expanded new book, you'll find the black and white version out on Amazon or the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We also have a color spiral bound version on our website. Well, today I want to talk about traumatic brain injuries otherwise known as TBIs. These usually occur from a sudden blow to the head or other physical event. It's one of the most common causes of disability and death in adults. TBI is a broad term and encompasses many types of damage that can impact the brain. If it affects one part of the brain, it's called a focal injury. If it spans over several areas, it's called a diffuse injury. Severity can range from a mild concussion to a life-threatening situation involving, let's say, a fractured skull. Fortunately, most head injuries aren't lethal and cause only superficial damage, such as, let's say, a laceration on the scalp, a black eye, or a painful bump. These wounds, however, can hide damage inside the cranium. That's the part of the skull that contains the actual brain, and it's important for the off-grid medic to recognize when trauma into the skull causes damage that can lead to a bad outcome. Let's talk about concussions. They're the most common type of traumatic brain injury. A concussion is associated with a variety of symptoms that are often pretty much immediately apparent. Although the effects vary from one individual to the next, you might expect, let's say, a loss of consciousness, but in the majority of cases, the victim may remain completely alert. Headache is actually the most commonly seen symptom that may occur on and off for days afterwards. Other symptoms include things like dizziness, confusion, nausea, loss of motor coordination, blurred or double vision, slurred speech, ringing in the ear, also called tinnitus, and difficulty focusing on tasks at hand. 
Let's say a person has been knocked unconscious by a blow to the head. In most cases, they're going to regain consciousness in less than two minutes. You can expect them to be foggy, move clumsily, be slow to answer questions, and behave inappropriately. In other words, put me in, coach. I'm fine. Well, they may not even remember the events immediately prior that led to the injury. In sports, by the way, an injured player might not, let's say, even remember their position. They might not remember the score or who their opponent is. These are questions that are sometimes asked. Loss of consciousness is a serious concern. If the victim is out less than two minutes, the patient still merits close observation for the next 48 hours. You should examine them for evidence of other injuries and determine that the patient has regained normal motor function. Make sure they can move all their extremities with normal range of motion, coordination, and strength. Now, a period of what we call relative rest, relative rest, is prescribed for about the next 48 hours. In this situation, the patient should avoid strenuous activity or perform duties that require serious mental effort. Now, that includes things like video games. The patient does not have to be kept awake, nor has to remain in a dark room, as suggested by some. There are those who no longer believe, by the way, that it's necessary to wake the patient if they're asleep as long as they're breathing normally. But many still recommend waking them about every two to three hours the first night to make certain that they're easily aroused. In most cases, a concussion causes no permanent damage unless there are multiple episodes of head trauma over time. Now, that is the case sometimes in certain athletes, football athletes, let's say boxers, especially boxers. That's something that you could definitely expect in people who get whacked in the head for a living. It should be noted that a physical strike to the head is not necessary to suffer a concussion. A particularly jarring football tackle to the chest or to the back or the violent shaking of an infant can cause a concussion or worse. And this is because the brain is bouncing against the hard walls of the cranium, that part of the skull that contains the brain. When injury occurs at the site of a blow to the head, it's called a coup injury, C-O-U-P. Just as often, it can occur on the opposite side of the head as the brain rebounds. That's known as a contra-coup injury. In many cases, there's evidence of direct trauma to the skull. If that's visible, well, an open head injury would mean, let's say, that the skull has been penetrated with possible exposure of brain matter. That's bad. If the skull is not fractured, it's referred to as a closed injury. An indentation of the skull is clear evidence of a fracture, and the outlook may be grim due to the likelihood of bleeding or swelling in the brain. A closed injury, well, that could still become life-threatening for the same reasons. Now, why does this happen? The brain requires blood and oxygen to function normally. An injury which causes bleeding or swelling inside the skull will result in pressure, increased pressure. This pressure makes it harder for the heart to get blood and oxygen into the brain. Bleeding, an accumulation known as a hematoma, could occur within the brain tissue itself or possibly between the layers of matter that cover the brain. Without adequate circulation and oxygenation, brain function ceases. Pressure that's high enough could actually cause a portion of the brain to push downward through the base of the skull. This is known as a brain herniation, and without modern medical care, will almost invariably lead to death. A severe traumatic brain injury occurs when bleeding into tissue causes a lack of oxygen or the brain's nerve fibers to be torn as they ricochet inside the bony skull. There are a number of signs and symptoms which might help the off-grid medic identify those patients that have a serious TBI. They include a prolonged loss of consciousness, anything 10 minutes or more, you've got a real problem, seizures, worsening headache over time, nausea and vomiting, bruising around the eyes and ears, bleeding from the ears or nose, 
worsening confusion or apathy or drowsiness, mental status changes, or as I mentioned earlier, an indentation of the skull. So I mentioned that if the period of unconsciousness is over 10 minutes in length, you might expect a significant injury to have occurred. In these cases, you have to verify the airways clear, the breathing's regular, things are important, vital signs such as pulse, respiration rate, blood pressure, you got to monitor them closely. The patient's head should be immobilized and attention also being given to the neck and spine. They need to be stabilized in case they're also damaged. Other signs of a traumatic brain injury are the appearance of bruising behind the ears. We call that battle's sign, battle's sign. It also can occur around the eyes. That's called raccoon sign. Now that indicates internal bleeding in the cranium, despite the impact may not have occurred in those areas, not hit the eyes or hit the area of the ears. But if the bleeding is occurring in those areas, well, you may have a problem. Bleeding from the ear itself or nose without direct trauma to those areas is another indication. The fluid that drains out may be clear or light yellow, as a matter of fact, which could represent spinal fluid leakage. In addition, intracranial bleeding may cause pressure that compresses nerves that lead to the pupil. In this case, you'll notice that your unconscious patient has one pupil indeed more dilated than the other, as I mentioned earlier. A severe consequence of bleeding in the brain is a stroke, also known as a cerebrovascular accident, or CVA. It represents damage to the brain caused by lack of blood supply. This could occur in a head injury due to a blockage of blood flow to a portion of the brain. This blockage could be due to a clot, a hemorrhage, or anything else that compromises the circulation. Another possibility is a defect in a blood vessel known as an aneurysm, which could look like a little bleb, and it could rupture even in the absence of a traumatic event. Look for signs of a stroke using the acronym BEFAST, B-E-F-A-S-T. B stands for balance. A patient with a stroke experiences a sudden loss of balance. Eyes, they experience partial or total vision loss. The face changes. Smiling yields a very uneven appearance. Arm, one arm is weaker than the other when testing strength. Speech, the patient may slur words or be unable to talk. And then T is for time. In normal times, getting the patient to advanced care immediately is of paramount importance. A stroke is usually heralded by a sudden severe headache. In the aftermath, whatever functions are associated with the part of the brain affected will be lost or impaired, as I've described before. Strokes may also occur due to reasons other than trauma, such as uncontrolled high blood pressure. Although it may not be difficult to diagnose a major CVA in an austere setting, few options will exist for actually treating it. Statistically, more than 80% of strokes are caused by a blood clot, so blood thinners like warfarin or even aspirin might help. The problem is these medicines might worsen the minority of strokes that are caused by hemorrhage, and it may be difficult to tell which is which without advanced testing. In these circumstances, the medic should keep the victim on bed rest for a time, Indeed, in the long run, they actually may recover at least partial function. If they do, most improvement tends to happen in the first few days. Now, having said that, each brain injury and rate of recovery is unique. In younger people, miraculous recoveries have been documented. In these cases, it's thought that other areas of the brain make up the deficit caused by the damaged tissue. The brain might learn to reroute information and function around lost areas. The end results, difficult to predict, may not be apparent for quite some time. The many other possible long-term effects of serious traumatic brain injuries are wide-ranging and seriously impact a person's quality of life. They include headaches, confusion, dizziness, I'm talking about chronic problems, 
shortened attention span, memory deficits, loss of problem-solving ability, paralysis or weakness, spasticity, which is a tightening and shortening of the muscles, poor balance, loss of coordination, fatigue, tremors, seizures, problems swallowing, changes in vision, hearing, other senses, loss of body awareness, difficulty communicating orally or in writing, or even understanding the written word, difficulty in performing common activities of daily living, like eating, bathing, paying bills, and stuff like that. There's also, of course, the loss of the ability to drive a car, perform other learned skills like that. You may see changes in sleep pattern, uh, eating habits, loss of bowel and bladder control, and personality changes. President Theodore Roosevelt once said, do what you can with what you have where you are. Trauma to the head may have negligible consequences or it may be life-threatening and leave the victim with long-term deficits. In some circumstances, there may be little that you, the medic, can do in a long-term survival situation. It's a hard reality in hard times. Okay, let's go on to something else. In the battle to prevent severe cases of COVID, the oral medication Paxlovid has become a standard treatment with nearly 6 million courses of therapy given in the U.S. alone. Until now, this drug has been free to patients as the government has sprung for the cost. In a few months, however, that won't be the case, leaving those who are at most risk for major illness, that is the elderly and the uninsured, having to pay a pretty substantial price, currently more than 500 bucks. Although the pandemic seems to have abated in the United States, the number of daily worldwide cases, at least as of November 22nd, last time I checked, are about the same as the same date two years ago. With winter coming in the U.S., some are concerned about a possible resurgence of cases. Death rates from COVID remain at about 1%, more in the senior population. Now, there are many billions of dollars have been spent on sometimes hastily developed options to treat or at least mitigate the effects of COVID. Paxlovid, a combination of two drugs, is credited with a decrease in hospitalizations and deaths from the virus. That's a good thing. The Department of Health and Human Services, however, will soon stop supplying free treatments, forcing pharmacies to buy and bill for them on the market just as they do other medications. This will, by the way, also affect COVID vaccines, which will go from about 30 bucks to about 120 bucks. Close to 90% of those people that are dying from COVID are 65 and older, the age where Medicare covers many medical costs. Unfortunately, so far, Medicare Part D would be restricted from covering the cost of Paxlovid. It's only available now due to an FDA emergency use authorization. Until the FDA gives full approval to the drug, it won't be covered for people most at risk. A government approval for an additional $2.5 billion is in the works, but there's no guarantee that funds will be available to continue the free program. Many citizens are already facing difficulties getting Paxlovid prescriptions, but there's a procedure indeed by which a COVID-positive patient can obtain it directly from the pharmacy as long as you have proof of normal liver and kidney studies and a positive COVID test. So this is something you might consider talking to your pharmacist about. Even if you have health insurance, they're paying for COVID therapy is not a guaranteed thing. Eventually, I expect they'll figure out the medicine is less expensive than a hospital stay, but it may take months. At the very least, expect higher copays. One bit of good news is that those on public insurance plans for low-income populations like Medicaid will have Paxlovid covered at least until 2024. Also, the government has only used about a third of the 20 million doses it actually purchased from Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, the maker of Paxlovid, it's hoped that these surplus doses will be made available, if not for free, then for a very sizable discount. It's only right.
Clearly, when faced with a potentially large medical bill, many patients will forego getting the medicine. That's bad. That will lead to bad outcomes. The government and even private insurers would be remiss in not making sure that Paxlovid and other COVID treatments are affordable. Perhaps they should review the data on the effectiveness of more affordable treatments like ivermectin that aren't currently FDA-approved but are suggested and evidence shown by the Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance, of which I'm an advocate. The bottom line is, let's face it, any oral medication is far less expensive than two weeks in the intensive care unit. And now, a word from our sponsor. Baboons! Baboons, those happy-go-lucky primates that'll steal the ham sandwich out of your fanny pack and give you a friendly little nip to boot. Give one a hug and get a big surprise. Baboons, available at fine zoos everywhere. Hey, here's a segment of our show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spirko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like me to address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Well, here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Tabitha, who writes, How can I minimize or regress an ever-increasing allergy to bee stings? I'm around 40 years old. My mom increasingly started to react to bee stings around my age from almost no reaction until she wound up in the ER and now has an EpiPen. Every time I have been stung over the past couple of years, it has been increasingly worse to now I live on Benadryl and have trouble breathing for a few days. But the doctors won't give me an EpiPen because, well, I'm still breathing. Is there any way to reverse or minimize this trend? Tabitha, bee stings are a common outdoor nuisance. In most cases, they're just annoying and home treatment is all that's necessary to ease the pain. But if you're allergic to bee stings or you get stung numerous times, you may have a more serious reaction that requires emergency treatment or therapy to desensitize you to the particular allergy-causing substance. You might consider allergies to be a thing that affects kids or young adults, but a lot of people around your age start manifesting significant allergies as well. I myself started experiencing various allergies in my 40s, which have continued to this day. And yes, they've gotten worse over time. Bee stings are in particular a major nuisance for those people who like gardening or the outdoors in general. Let's talk about them for a minute. To sting, a bee jabs a barbed stinger into the skin. The bee sting venom contains proteins that affect skin cells and the immune system, causing pain and swelling around the sting area. In people with a bee sting allergy, bee venom can trigger a more serious immune system reaction. You might be surprised to know that adults tend to have more severe reactions than children do and are more likely to die of shock than children. There are different levels of reactions from mild to severe. You're experiencing worsening symptoms and that indeed is not unusual. Some people have a mild effect one time and much worse another. Most of the time, bee sting symptoms are going to be minor. You'll feel a sudden, instant, sharp burning pain at the sting site, and a red welt with swelling will appear at the area of the injury. This is what happens when I get stung. Those with moderate reactions will notice more extreme redness and an enlarging swelling that may progress over a day or two, may not resolve for a week. A severe allergic reaction is called anaphylaxis, and it's potentially life-threatening. It requires emergency treatment for sure. Signs and symptoms include skin reactions, including hives and itching and flushed or pale skin, sometimes not close to where the site of the injury was, difficulty breathing, swelling of the throat and tongue, a weak, rapid pulse, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, dizziness or fainting, and even loss of consciousness. 
People who have a severe allergic reaction to a bee sting have a 25-65% to 65% chance of anaphylaxis the next time they're stung. What can be done in your case, Tabitha? The basics you know, and you've performed them a number of times. They include removing the stinger, if there is one, cleansing the area with soap and water, icing the area down to bring down swelling, taking an oral antihistamine, like Benadryl, like you've been taking, to reduce itching, and using a topical cream to lessen symptoms. An option in recurring bee stings includes something called immunotherapy, which has been clinically proven to lessen insect venom sensitivity and might be a reasonable option for you, Tabitha. It involves injecting the patient with the reaction-causing allergen in order to increase tolerance to it. This isn't a one-time thing, by the way. Injections are given on a regular schedule once or twice a week. It's a long-term therapy meant to bolster the immune system without triggering a severe allergic reaction. Oftentimes, it'll give ongoing relief that continues well after the treatment finishes. Immunotherapy is typically performed in adults or children that are at least five years of age. Regular injections enable the body to develop a tolerance to the venom. This part of the treatment is known as a build-up phase, usually lasts between three and six months. After that, the maintenance phase of treatment begins, during which the quantity of each dose remains stable. There are longer intervals, generally between two and four weeks between each injection, as opposed to once or twice a week. Within a year of starting this immunotherapy, allergic symptoms should be greatly diminished. Treatment usually continues for three to five years, at which point symptoms should disappear altogether. Immunotherapy is very safe, but expect some warmth, redness, and swelling at the injection sites. You'll be asked to hang out at the doctor's office for a half hour or so to make sure the reaction isn't excessive. By the way, for the life of me, I can't imagine why a doctor would hesitate writing a prescription for an EpiPen in someone with your history. It's simple to use, safe, and other than your heart racing a little for a while, it's pretty well tolerated. You might consider getting a second opinion or maybe seeing an allergy specialist. Possibly the best way to prevent issues with bee stings is not to get stung. Consider these strategies. Avoiding wearing bright colors or floral prints, which can attract bees. Avoid drinking sweet beverages when outside, especially inspecting cans and straws before drinking from them. Tightly cover food containers and trash cans. Avoid fallen fruit. Wear closed-toed shoes when walking outside. Don't wear loose clothing, which can trap bees between the cloth and your skin. Be careful when mowing the lawn or trimming vegetation, activities which might arouse insects in a beehive. If you have hives near the house, consider having them removed by a professional. If you notice a few bees flying around you, stay calm and slowly walk away from the area. Swatting at an insect may cause it to sting. If a bee or wasp stings you or many insects start to fly around, cover your mouth and nose and quickly leave the area. When a bee stings, it releases a chemical that attracts other bees. If you can, get into a building or closed vehicle. Anyway, hope this helps. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do an old country doctor and your family a favor by getting medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Okay, well, here's something you first aid guys probably haven't thought about too much when it comes to survival setting. In standard first aid, once you've stopped the bleeding and applied a splint or a dressing, the emergency is essentially over. You sit and wait for an ambulance or the rescue helicopter to arrive while monitoring the patient, right? Well, in an austere setting or in a survival scenario, the medic has to follow the status of that wound more than just a few minutes or hours. You're in charge until that person is fully recovered. That is a mind blower. Constant, diligent wound care is, guess what, your responsibility. 
Now, once life-threatening emergencies like hemorrhage are managed, a full patient history and physical should be completed. It's important to understand that a wound is not just a hole. It's part of a person, a whole person, (laughs) W-H-O-L-E, who should be informed of your plan of action and participate if possible in their care. This includes things like wound cleanings, pain treatment, and antibiotics if they're needed. Most wounds will heal completely over time, but some may never achieve full recovery due to massive injuries or complicating conditions such as diabetes and the lack of modern advanced medical care. The best care may sometimes yield a less than optimal result. It's the medic's duty to care for the patient the best way they can with the limited supplies and technology available off the grid. Never underestimate the power of hope in many of these cases, by the way. Your goals include the full recovery and healing of the wound, avoidance of further spread or damage of local infections, controlling pain and other symptoms, and prevention of secondary wounds such as bed sores, which is something that can happen. Of course, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Institute and enforce policies that will help prevent primary wounds from being incurred in the first place. Wear eye protection, wear hand protection, foot protection. Be careful when people are performing activities of daily survival to which they're not accustomed. They are going to get injured. So the medic should have knowledge of the process by which soft tissue wounds heal. Let's talk about soft tissue wounds. An open wound can heal by something called primary intention or closure. The wound is closed by the provider in some way, such as with sutures or staples. We've talked about that many times on this podcast. This results in a smaller scar, but it does carry the risk of inadvertently sequestering bacteria deep in the wound. That could be very dangerous. Then there's secondary intention or granulation. Leaving a wound open causes the formation of what we call granulation tissue. That's rapidly growing early scar tissue that's rich in blood vessels. It fills in spaces where the wound edges don't touch. After a period of time, it actually turns into mature scar tissue, and this scar is larger, of course, than if the wound were closed by primary intention, but proper care does decrease the risk of infection. There are four stages to this type of healing. Bleeding control is stage number one, or hemostasis is what we call that. Within seconds after a wound begins to bleed, special blood cells start to clump together and clot, protecting the wound and preventing further blood loss. Second stage of soft tissue healing is inflammation. Once the wound is clotted, nearby blood vessels open to allow fresh nutrients and oxygen into the wound for healing. Certain immune cells fight infection and aid in repair. In this circumstance, you would expect to see some redness at the wound edges, but you do want to follow closely for spread of those wound edges. Could be a sign of infection. You may want to use a felt tip marker or some other way to determine the borders of an open wound's redness and see if that is spreading or whether it's going away, which would be a good sign. Third stage is growth and rebuilding, otherwise known as proliferation. Oxygen-rich red blood cells arrive to help build new tissue. Chemical signals instruct cells to create connective tissue called collagen. This serves as structural support for other tissues to begin repair. Oftentimes this area will appear red but will slowly lighten over time as, as time goes on. The fourth stage is strengthening and remodeling. Over time, the new granulation tissue gets stronger. Within about three months, the scar approaches the strength of the previously undamaged skin. Full healing, however, may take much, much longer. Now, there is something called delayed closure. If you don't close the wound immediately, you may still not want to keep it open forever until it fills in on its own, especially a large wound. In some cases, it's prudent to leave the wound open for a period of two or three days with regular cleanings to give time for signs of an early infection to become apparent in the form of, like, say, spreading redness, swelling, and warmth. 
Closure is performed after a period of observation if no such signs are, are present. So the decision as to what to do with the wound is sometimes difficult. It's often safest to allow a wound to heal on its own rather than suture or staple it closed. If left open, wound dressings must be changed regularly, at least twice a day or whenever the bandage is saturated with blood or fluids, etc. In order to give the best chance for rapid healing, you've got to really keep on top of this wound and make sure you change dressings frequently. Factors that can delay wound healing include things like alcohol use, poor nutrition, smoking, believe it or not, diabetes, especially if poorly controlled, untreated infections or those resistant to, let's say, antibiotics, and of course, advanced age. A signs of a wound infection would be spreading redness, swelling, and warmth compared to unaffected areas. You can often look at the other side of the body. You know, if it's on, on the arm, look at the other arm and see if it, how it compares. Is it warmer? Is it more red on the side with the wound? The area sometimes appears shiny due to tension on the skin from swelling. Now, in some cases, inflammatory fluid known as exudate may drain from the wound, and that may have a foul odor or may not have a foul odor, but it could. Drainage may be watery, could be clear, yellow, could contain some blood. In frank infections, pus may be noted. Pus is composed of liquefied dead tissue, bacteria, debris, and white blood cells. It's thicker than other exudates and may be yellow, white, or greenish depending on the bacteria involved. Other signs include fever and increasing pain. If the infection enters the bloodstream, the patient may experience a fast heart rate, shortness of breath, altered mental status. These people can die in survival settings. Antibiotic therapy and other measures should be instituted as early as possible to prevent complications. And we've talked about this in a lot of detail in the past. And of course, you'll find all that information regarding antibiotics and how to get them and how to, how to use them in our books at uh, store.doomandbloom.net or on Amazon. Now, there are numerous innovative techniques for wound care that are available in modern medicine. Nearly every day, there's a new device, dressing, or topical treatment that comes into the market Unfortunately, you're probably not going to have access to a lot of this stuff once you know what hits the fan. So what can you actually do with limited supplies and, let's say, no power? Well, you want to first, of course, explain to the patient what you're doing and answer questions they may have. You want to offer a pain reliever if available before you change dressings. Uh, you want to wash your hands before, during, between glove changes, and after performing wound care. You want to wipe down surfaces where fresh dressing change supplies are going to be placed you want to use a disinfectant for that. Even a 1 to 10 bleach solution might help for surfaces. Of course, do not touch clean items with dirty hands or gloves. Speaking of gloves, wear nitrile gloves while performing wound care, changing gloves after removing the old dressing and irrigating the wound. Nitrile gloves do not contain latex, which a lot of people are allergic to these days. You might even want to consider wearing a face shield, goggles, or a protective gown if there's a chance to splatter. Some wounds are different and have more tendency to splatter blood or other kinds of exudate. Now, you only want to use disinfected or sterilized instruments. You want to clean and disinfect or sterilize all instruments between each dressing change. If scissors are used to remove an old dressing, use a clean pair to cut the fresh dressings and tape, or at least clean and disinfect the scissors between. Use a barrier under the wound to absorb drainage and keep bedding clean. You want to also perform wound care twice per day or more frequently if necessary. Irrigate the wound with warm, clean water, sterile saline, or sterile water. You may need to use things like betadine, a povidone iodine solution, 
or other methods if your wound is actually clearly contaminated or clearly infected. And if there's non-viable tissue, tissue that's gone black or, or brown, clearly has no blood supply anymore, you've got to get rid of it. That's called debridement. We're going to talk about more options for wound cleaning and for eliminating dead tissue in future shows. So it's a good idea to note the date and time of dressing changes or write them down if you're forgetful, plus the appearance of the wound, any signs of infection. These documentations are helpful not only for you, but for future medics that may be taking over for you if you're not available. So you want to document any treatments performed like debridement or uh, let's say using uh, topical ointments, things like that, and make it clear the history of what's going on. There's plenty more to talk about on this subject, but that's all the time we have. We'll pick this up on our next show. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden, I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. To contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.